Welcome to the first episode of Epic Earth, a podcast for those curious about the STEM fields and the awesome, quirky, and fun experiences and research that is taking place right now. This is episode number one, Volcanoes as Instruments. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we take a journey around this epic earth. Welcome to our very first episode of Epic Earth Podcast. Uh, I'm Ashley Bosa, and I am here with Scott Galvain. Hey, everybody. And um, our interviewee for today is Brian Rosenblatt. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, Brian. Um, So Brian is a Boise State University master's student. Uh, He's actually an alum of Boise State because he was an undergraduate here as well. He graduated a couple years ago with a BS in general physics and a minor in applied math, and then decided to continue his uh, graduate program here with Jeff Johnson, who is a volcano, acoustics, infrasound, seismologist here at Boise State. Um, Brian has a lot of accolades. He's presented a lot of his research uh, at conferences such as AGU, Uh, the Converse Ampersound Workshop, which was in Fairbanks, Alaska. And he also did, um, here at Boise State, we have something called the three-minute thesis that the Graduate College puts on, and he won the audience favorite um, two times in a row, I believe. Is that right, Brian? Yeah, that's right, actually. I voted for him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, Brian, you study volcanoes, is that right? Yep, I study volcanoes. And uh, you've traveled to a couple of volcanoes, actually. Yeah, I've been very lucky. I've gotten the chance to travel to Stromboli Volcano in Italy. That was actually right when I started my master's degree. And then the majority of what my research is focused on, um, Villarica Volcano in southern Chile. So those are the two active volcanoes that I've traveled to. So when you say active, what do you mean? What, what defines active? Yeah, so usually when we talk about volcanoes, we talk about they're either active or they're dormant. So a dormant volcano could possibly erupt again in the future, but most likely won't um, and isn't erupting at the moment, whereas active volcanoes are... They're continually um, having volcanic processes and giving out volcanic signals, essentially, which deems them as an active volcano. They may not be erupting in the sense of how we typically think of a volcano erupting, but they're putting out some type of volcanic signature. So those are the, those are the active volcanoes. That's really great. And um, so what specifically do you research on volcanoes, Brian? Yeah, so my focus is volcano acoustics. So I like to think of these volcanoes as just massive horns. You know, like the crater is the bell. Think of it as like a trombone or a trumpet. We have a a crater, which is a big bell. And then the entire geometry of this volcano is the the shape of the instrument or the horn. And then whatever's down there at the bottom that's uh, creating these noises is like the mouthpiece or the player of the instrument. So that's what my focus is. The acoustics are the sounds that these volcanoes are producing. That's really cool. Um, And speaking of instruments, you like to play instruments, is that correct? Yeah, I do play instruments. That's why that metaphor hits home for me. It works really well. 
Yeah, what's, what, what instruments do you play? I play uh, primarily bass trombone, all types of trombone, but I can also play trumpet, a little bit of piano, some other things, but trombone's my primary, yeah. That's excellent, and it uh, sounds like you were in some of the bands here at Boise State as well. Yeah, actually, I was. that's part of the reason I came here. I was recruited by the marching band, and I got in-state. I got an out-of-state fee waiver, so I'm only paying in-state tuition as an undergrad. So I was in the marching band for four years. I've been in the jazz band for six years now, trombone choir for six years, and the symphonic winds group for six years. So I've been playing around with the Boise State Ensemble for a while here. Then I was also a part of a reggae band for a year. Um, I just joined a a new band recently and have played in a few other bands around the city. What's that new band called? The new band's called Lounge on Fire. Sounds very volcanic. It does. <laughs> yeah, it does, actually. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm glad that you get to um, continue your music adventures. That's really, you sound like a busy guy. Um, we also forgot to mention that uh, Brian's dog, Baxter, is in with us today, and he's uh, very curious about what's happening on the desk up here. So if you hear some noises, that's, that's just Baxter. Um, he's really cute. Um, okay, so uh, Brian, how did you get interested in volcanism? How did you get into this field? Yeah, so actually, like, I wasn't much of a geoscientist whatsoever. I did my undergrad in physics, as you said, and uh, just really wanted to focus on acoustics in some some manner. Um, so I applied to a bunch of different programs for grad school, and um, and I found this this research group here at Boise State with Jeffrey Johnson um, titled Volcano Acoustics or Volcano Acoustics Group. So it's like, that sounds right up my alley. And I applied for it, applied for a few other programs and got the best deal just sticking around here. So that's ultimately how it ended up happening. The volcano was kind of secondhand to the acoustics that I was interested in. So it just worked out like that. When you were a kid, did, would you have ever thought that you'd be working on volcanoes, Abs- like actively working on active volcanoes? Yeah, definitely not. Absolutely no. <laughs> not. And being out there, it's so much fun, honestly. It is. Yeah. Um, what is the best, most fun thing that you, um, <laughs> about what you do, about volcanoes? Oh, yeah. The, the best part is that I get to climb up these volcanoes and then take a nap on the summit. <laughs> Yeah, I heard that was a thing with you. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually really soothing, the low rumbles of the volcano, and then the ground kind of shakes a little bit sometimes. Um, but no, I mean, the, the best part's definitely, like, the traveling, seeing all these new places, and then climbing to these heights where people don't typically climb to and seeing things in the view that people don't usually get to see. And then on top of that, when you are a researcher on top of the volcano, you get you get a little bit of... Uh, you get to do a little bit more of things than what the tourists usually are able to do, and you're able to stay there longer. And I mean, you're there doing science the whole time, and science is a big puzzle, so that that's a lot of fun for me, just being up there, recording things, setting things up, and doing this puzzle of science. That's, um, that's really interesting and so cool. Had you traveled much before starting your master's program here? Um, let's see. I was actually, I have actually had the opportunity to travel, and a lot of it's come from my music. Um, 
my musical past. So I traveled to Redlands, California with the trombone choir for um, the International Trombone Festival. Um, I've also traveled to Hawaii for another musical thing. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, different things like that. But I definitely traveling um, internationally, I have not been able to do that much before I became a master's student. So that's a great opportunity for me. Yeah, that's excellent. That's really cool that you've been given that that opportunity. Yeah. Um, do you have any memorable or fun stories from the field that you can think of? Yeah, I probably do. Let's see. Besides well, napping. I know I was talking <laughs> about the napping. Um, okay, so when we were in Stromboli, so this is my very first time. I'm not much of a geoscientist at this point. I'm just figuring things out, and I'm just watching all these we were, in, we were in Italy, Stromboli. Um, it's this little island off the boot of Italy. Um, and a ton of different researchers from across the globe come to visit. So German researchers, Italians, Russians, Americans, South Americans. A ton of people are there, and everyone's focusing on their own thing. Uh, so this one group goes in with a drone, and they have these sensors that are one-time-use sensors, and the drone flies right over the... Um, crater right over one of these vents and then drops the sensor in and so you just watch the sensor fall into the uh, into the crater and then the researchers is the researchers are sitting there with their um, equipment reading the information that the sensor is giving them right from inside um, the crater until oh, wow. it eventually burns up so that was like one of the first things I ever saw on top of a volcano, and that was incredibly impressive to me. That is impressive. It's like real-time information. Yep. yep. <laughs> and then just equipment you're not worried about losing yeah. at all. Yeah, cheap equipment, one-time uh, use. Do you know what kind of sensors they had? Yeah, they had temperature sensors. They had, um, uh, let's see, chemical sensors. So they were, they were testing the composition of, of the atmosphere in that area. The gas. Yeah, yeah, gas sensors. Um, I think those were the two that I was aware of. They may have had more, but I'm not sure. They had a lot of them and two little drones just buzzing around. It was funny. We all have to share our drone space, so Jeff was trying to take pictures of the volcano for our structure for motion. Um, so you, you fly the drone around and take these overlapping pictures, and you can basically create a digital elevation model, which is just like a, a three-dimensional map. So Jeff gets the airspace for an hour to fly around and do his photos, and then the other group gets their airspace for an hour to drop sensors into the crater, and then another one gets their time for an hour to make their own maps. So we're all sharing the airspace and the volcano surface space. It's a big collaboration. It's a lot of fun. Wow. What a cool experience. Oh, I have a question, Brian. Cool. What sort of research are you currently working on? Yeah, so my research is focused on uh, Viarica, like I said. Um, Viarica is an open vent volcano, um, and it has this, this steaming lava lake within it. So um, Viarica just produces this continuous, continuous noise. It's nonstop, and it's very peaked signal. <laughs> Baxter's throwing up. <laughs> no, he's just coughing. Oh. You're good. <laughs> Let you go. <laughs> with us one moment. <laughs> Good luck. We include everybody. This is an all-inclusivity <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Dogs included. Cats, if you want to bring them in. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> Fish. I don't know how like 
you know, I'm sure the fish will be very indifferent to anything. But <laughs> and I didn't bring my fish today. I thought they weren't allowed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, pets are encouraged on the podcast. Okay, well, back to my research. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm basically just listening to Viarica like it's like it's any other noise-making machine, I guess. And those noises tell us a lot about the processes and the properties of the volcano itself, what it's doing, what it might do, what it has done. Um, so that's the majority, that's the gist of what my research is focused on. That's really cool. I like how it relates to your love for music as well. And, you know, especially trombones and that whole aspect of how volcanoes are just one really massive instrument, essentially. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, if you've never seen Brian in action, he can explain all of that um, with some of his trombone moves. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, we didn't, have, we didn't have him bring his trombone in today, but True. we should have. Um, okay, so I have a very serious question for you. Cool. <laughs> How would you solve a scientific problem on Mars if you lived there? If I lived on Mars? Mm hmm Hmm. Well, that's like a broad question. I guess I'd have to assume we're stuck inside because the atmosphere probably wouldn't be breathable. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched, like, Stargate or anything, but I would do some, some cool science stuff. Or maybe like Martian, like, uh, what's his name? Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Just uh, like terraform the soil or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just casually. Yeah. I mean, if, I don't know, I guess I need to know more about what the specific problem was, but. Let's say we can't grow food. On we, Earth? And we, on, on Mars. Oh, well, on Mars. Yeah. Let's well, say we can't grow food on Earth and we need to on Mars. Yeah, yeah. And I'm already on Mars. And you're on Mars. And the, and the soil's not growing, so I have to get it to grow. Yeah. I'd probably, like, to be honest, if the soil, like, wasn't growing or, like, wasn't doing what it needed to be, like, I'd probably just try starting. I'd start trying, like, everything that I could. So I'd, like, pee on the soil, <laughs> like, poop on the soil, like, try to get nutrients get to it, I guess. Organic matter. Yeah. yeah, it would depend on, like, I don't know what I have here in this Martian space station, but, like, I would be trying to get nutrients to it, like trying to get some new soil, maybe just com composting like banana peels and things that I'm eating. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, something like that. Yeah, that's great. That's I the mean, best. Thing. I feel like it's, you know, it's the, the possibilities are limitless. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> um, very cool. Um, so we have um, the segment, Brian, where um, we try to get you to sort of talk about your research um, given three different types of groups or people. Cool. Um, and so we call it, uh, well, I don't know what it's called yet. We haven't really yeah. <laughs> come up with a name. But um, so our first question is, how would you describe what you do to a fourth or fifth grade class? Fifth grader. Yeah. So let's see. To If I'm talking to an elementary schooler right now, I would tell them basically, like, like you know what a volcano is. You've seen it on TV. Um, and they don't always look exactly like what they do on TV, those, those cone-shaped volcanoes um, that are just erupting red-hot stuff out of it. They don't always look like that. But in the case for my research, it does happen to look just like that. So you can picture that exact thing that you see on TV, a big, big cone. And 
um, lava spewing out of it. So four years ago, the volcano that I'm researching erupted really, really violently, and it spewed a ton of lava really high into the air. So now what I'm doing, now what we're doing is we put all these microphones all around the volcano, and these microphones are just constantly listening, listening to the noises that the volcano is making. And we're comparing those noises to the noises that it has made in the past, like just before that violent eruption that I said. And using those noises, we can potentially um, try to predict or forecast when it's going to exhibit similar behaviors to that. Um, and so not talking too much about how those noises are coming or why they're, why they're there in the first place, just that these volcanoes make noises and we can record them over very long amounts of times and compare how the noises are changing versus what the volcano is doing. Cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> great explanation. That yeah. was. <laughs> How would you describe it to maybe um, someone who's older, like a high schooler or an undergraduate student who's not in the geoscience field? Undergrad. Yeah, so this gets a little more fun for me, I think. So try to imagine a, a subwoofer, right? The subwoofer has this diaphragm that pushes against the atmosphere when that that diaphragm pushes on the atmosphere, makes a pressure wave, and that pressure wave um, goes into our ears and tickles our ear hairs, and that's essentially what we hear as sound, these, these pressure waves or these density waves traveling through. So this volcano is a gigantic subwoofer, and the way that acoustics dictates what noises will come out of things is essentially through geometry. So the shape of a trombone, you slowly slide it out, make it a little bit longer, and it slightly makes a lower or deeper um, pitch noise. So these volcanoes are massive, they're gigantic. They're so big that the noises that they like to resonate in or produce are lower than what humans can hear. So we, we record those sounds so that we can hear them um, in a more digital format essentially and can then, like I said, use those sounds over long records of time to try to predict when the volcano will erupt. Um, so like you get the sounds, do a crap load of math, yeah. and then you figure some useful information out. Yeah. yeah, and I mean these microphones that we're talking about, they, they're sampling data at very low and high frequencies, so the humans, humans can hear frequencies between 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. The volcano can produce frequencies as low or even lower than one hertz. So this, these microphones are the only way that we're really able to hear these the low resonant noises that the volcano likes to produce. Nice. So you're saying like we just can't hear these background noises, which the volcanoes are. They're sort of like humming in the background, but yep. we don't actually hear it. Yeah. And the reason we don't hear it is because the volcano is so big that one wavelength within that volcano is is so wide that our ears just can't pick pick up those frequencies. So, we, so if we had like gigantic ears, yeah, we, we could hear. So that. like an elephant possibly has. So I think elephants can hear down to thirteen hertz. So the lower you get, and this is all on a log base scale. So the difference between thirteen hertz to twenty hertz is actually a lot. Um, and elephants can hear down to thirteen hertz. So they would be able to hear a little bit more of the volcano noises, but. Not the resonance of Viarica itself is a one hertz signal, so uh, elephants would not be able to hear that. But definitely, 
definitely other animals could hear lower or higher than we can. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. Okay, one more question yeah. um, in this segment. So how would you um, talk about your research to a professional at a conference? Expert. Yeah, so now it gets hard again. <laughs> so basically, um, yeah, we took this trip out to Eureka and recorded these sounds for a week with a very large distribution of these sensors, of these infrasound sensors. They were spread out all along the uh, summit, some inside the crater and some outside the crater. And after we had that week-long record, we took it back to Boise State, and uh, I began analyzing this. So I used a, a ton of different digital signal processing um, techniques, performed fast Fourier analysis over the um, amplitudes of, of their, their waves, and basically pulled out frequency content information, timing information with this dense array, and got a lot of good statistics as well um, from the volcano. So from there, um, we take this digital elevation model that we collected from a drone. So like I said before, this drone will fly around the summit, take a bunch of pictures, stitch together a, a map, and I can plug that map into a wave propagation model um, and then plug in or input all these sensors in the same location that we had them actually on Viarica, and then now record these uh, synthetic signals or this numerically computed um, signal and compare those to the um, signals that we had recorded. And also from there, I can slightly uh, change the parameter space. So make the frequencies of the sources slightly higher or lower, change the sound speeds, change the temperatures, which is the same as changing sound speeds. I can slightly adjust all these different parameters and essentially create a parameter space, which helps constrain um, um, the, the it helps us constrain what we should be seeing, or we, we already know what we're seeing based on what we recorded. So the parameter sp space constrains the range of where these parameters can fall, basically. We see like, oh, I put the sound speed so high that it's no longer resonating in this one hertz way. That's now a constraint um, for what we know that Viarica produces. Therefore, it doesn't have a sound speed as high as that or as low as that, et cetera. So that's a little more depth of, of what I'm doing. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, had you not explained the first two to us, yeah. I might have been really lost in that explanation, cool. but that was awesome. <laughs> cool. Glad, glad it worked. <laughs> Thanks for doing that. Yeah. Um, okay, now we just have some, like, really fun, interesting questions for you. Okay. Um, so, what's your favorite volcano? Yeah, my favorite volcano. Well, it's hard to, like, not pick the volcano that I visited myself, so... Honestly, I'd have to say that I like Stromboli better than Viarica. Stromboli is just a nice little private island. The hike up isn't terribly difficult. The one up Viarica was pretty difficult, but going down is a lot of fun. <laughs> um, Can you tell us how you got down Viarica? Yeah, so going down Viarica, you basically sit on a sled or sit on your butt. And so many people have done this that there's just a slide basically at so Viarica, I haven't mentioned this, it's completely glaciated on the top. So there's just ice, snow, and it's packed down. So you hike up all the way to the top four, five, six hours to get there. Um, and then you sit back down on your butt and slide down within 10 minutes, 20 minutes, you're at the bottom again. So 
it's just a, an ice slide basically that you, you take that so many people have taken before it's just dug into the side of this volcano now. So that's how you get down. That part's pretty fun. Um, but Stromboli actually there's a, a very similar thing that's not there's no ice or snow it's not glaciated but there's a huge um, there's a huge slide of just ash and it's very very fine ash really powdery and so even though it's pretty steep you can basically run down it as fast as humanly possible because if you fall it's like falling in fluff yeah. And so you, it's you kind of make it a game. You just run down really fast, and then you fall, and you like roll into this fluff, and then get back up. And you're already filthy from being up there for the whole day. So they both have advantages to coming down. Nice. Yeah. Well, we don't encourage it, but we do. We do like to have fun when we're out in the field um, with safety parameters in place, of course. Yeah. Um, I have a I have a question for you, Brian. Cool. Have you ever felt like? scared on a volcano or like has huh. anything happened where that has caused you to feel fear yeah there's been a few times um in Stromboli there was a few times that we hiked up to the top and then there was no visibility at all just very steamy um lots of clouds right in the area so you could hardly see even a foot in front of you and then you'd hear like a very loud bang and you kind of just have no clue what's going on so that was a little bit eerie um, another time there, Stromboli has these um, concrete like structures there to help protect you. If there is a massive eruption, you're supposed to go underneath them. And I was sitting on the top of one at, at this time, um, right when it erupted somewhat violently, and actually some bombs or some debris came pretty close to the structure. So that was also a little terrifying. And uh, I guess the first time we went up to Villarica as well, um, Nothing really bad happened, but it was making a lot of uh, very loud, boomy noises that I was not expecting at all. It took a little while to just get adjusted to that, but after a while, I just became used to it. So it's always a little bit eerie being up there, especially a brand new volcano first time. And I've read the stories. I've seen, seen the things that could happen. There's no guarantee, but we always do things safe. We're always wearing helmets. We always have our face masks up glasses goggles all that stuff so for the gas yeah, yeah. sulfur oh man mm. that stuff will get stuck in your mouth the, the taste yeah. of the sulfur will get stuck in your mouth for days but yeah with with all the safety measures in place you're relatively safe and i've never felt scared for my life before but i have been startled a few times <laughs> mm. yeah i mean they're pretty unstable structures right so and unpredictable i mean we I, can we predict when an eruption is going to happen? Yeah, I mean, not no. The answer to that would be no. Um, but that's kind of what we're aiming for. So we're slowly getting better and better at it. And that's like that's like one of the main goals of volcanology itself is to be able to forecast or predict just the activity of these things. Um, and it probably won't ever happen with 100% efficiency, but we definitely are getting better and better and we're creating a larger catalog or database for how all these different volcanoes erupt, um, which is really helping us out, just following those patterns. Um, I think a really good metaphor for this is if you've listened to enough of Mozart's sonatas, you'll have a good idea of when one's coming to its end as you've gained familiarity with Mozart's musical phrasing. Um, the same thing applies to volcanoes. You've listened to this volcano enough times, you've seen it reach its end of its musical phrase multiple times. 
Um, so once you get that characteristic uh, signature, like you feel the ending coming, just like a, a piece of music, um, that can help you predict. But then there's always those times where you're like, oh, it's about to end. And then the music keeps going and it, it faked you out. And that same thing happens with volcanoes too. So can never 100% be sure, but you can kind of start to gain those familiar uh, tones and the familiar uh, characteristics that the volcano does during those moments mm -hmm. to help you. That's a really cool analogy. Yeah. I like that. I really like that one. <laughs> That's great. Um, okay, one last question for you. Another serious question. Great. Um, how many square feet of pizza are eaten in the U.S. annually, do you oh, think? How many square feet of pizza? Yeah. Okay, so since this is a science podcast, I should do this in a science way. <laughs> so let's say one, like medium, like the average pie that... In America or in the world? In America. Okay. Let's just do cool. U.S. Per That's year. Good. I think we per eat year. the most pizza, yeah. probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's say the average pizza is a foot and a half squared. squared. So that would be... Let's... <laughs> let's Baxter's, Baxter's humming it over. <laughs> Baxter's thinking, too. You said <laughs> pizza, and now he's hungry. <laughs> All right. One and a half square feet, let's say there's, oh gosh, 10,000 pizzas eaten in one day. I'll go with that. Okay, so that puts us at 15,000 pizzas a day. Then I have to multiply that by 365. So let's just do that. All right, I'm going to just guess like 100. Oh, see, that seems way too small, but 100,000 square feet of pizza are eaten a year. every year. 100,000 square, 100, square feet. That's a lot of pizza. Yeah, but honestly, I feel like that's too low. Yeah. I kind of want to bump it up after I did that math. It does seem low, but who knows? <laughs> Google knows. We're going to look it up. We're not quite sure, but... <laughs> Good question. Yeah, well, we try to make... Oh, my God, you are way up. <laughs> it was higher? 3.75 billion square Oh my square. god. In one year? In a year. Oh my gosh. According to... According to Goldman Sachs. <laughs> well, like, I, I mean, they, they crunch numbers, yeah. so I, I think I we, guess. Can, like, we can I thought trust they were, I thought they were like an investment thing, so I don't know where who's... Who was hired to do that work? But some, some guy who's investing in pizza. Yeah, there's someone out there <laughs> yeah. with a massive pizza database that has all this information. Well, Brian, we want to thank you for um, being our first interview yeah. on this podcast. And um, Brian actually works with us, so you'll be hearing more from Brian. He's he's an awesome dude. Um, we're very fortunate to work with him. And uh, if you are interested in volcanoes or infrasound or acoustics or anything to do with geophysics, um, please get in contact with us and or Brian. And uh, yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah, could I do a few shout outs really quick? Absolutely. Cool. So first, I'd like to thank Adrian Fry for uh, composing the intro music for this episode. Um, and then I just want to thank everyone that's been a part of my master's uh, degree, my, my master's track. Um, for helping me get to where I am. I just submitted a, my first publication, so thanks to my advisor and all my co-authors on that um, for helping me get there. And also thanks to my girlfriend and my parents and other support people outside of school. So, yeah, and thanks to you guys for, like, having me here, setting this up, and Absolutely. letting me share. 
Well, we're excited to have you on, and you're going to do amazing things. I'm really excited for you. Thanks. That means cool. a lot. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. Well, that was an epic conversation. We'd like to thank all of our listeners. Tune in next time for another Epic Earth podcast.